van der Merwe, could you tell me uh, the first time you remember hearing a gun go off? Andile, I grew up on a farm, so uh, and, and I grew up with guns, so I think probably the first time was when I was about four years old. So, um, as, a, as a kid that age, it is a, a pretty scary event, but uh, if you grow up around... Uh, that is a way of life, hunting on a farm and so forth, that uh, eventually you get comfortable with it. And do you remember what the gun was used for? Were you guys hunting? Or do you remember like the specific scenario? Yeah, initially it was, uh, as they said in the old days, a, a two-two caliber. And then later on I graduated to a shotgun. So shotguns, I, I know nothing about guns. The shotguns the ones where basically you can just, student uh, uh, point in a general direction and it'll hit everything uh, not that easy but yeah <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot easier than a, than a rifle it's uh, but uh, i mean guns are tools so it's uh, the right tool for the right application the the difference is is probably the man in the loop with uh, the specific weapon so it's the same in the military um, the the technology takes you up to a point and then it becomes the human interaction that uh, makes makes it successful or not so that's that, well that's freaky and i want to get to that because uh, you're an army man if you, you which which i know but our audience probably doesn't and i i really want to get into the mind of what that's like uh, i have relatives who who are army men and they fascinate me and their experiences fascinate me and i'm i have quite a few questions for you in that regard but i i wonder about the four-year-old who first heard that gun go off and i wonder if uh, he'd always wanted to be an army man, or and, and what he'd make uh, of, if so, what he'd make of the career you you've had after you know leaving the army. You've had two careers, really, in, in a sense. Yes, um, actually, I I never intended to be a soldier. It's something that came about at the time, um, partially because of the national conscription system we had back then. Uh, so my choices were either go sit in Pretoria Central as a guest of government or go into the conscription system. It was uh, you know, sort of legislated that uh, all males between the age of 18 and, and uh, uh, 55 at that time were obliged to, to do military service, either in conscription, full-time, or, re uh, or reserves. Um, but uh, my ambition actually was to become a marine biologist. No way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, in my standard eight year, or now they call it grade 10, um, I went for the aptitude testing at the then Department of Sea Fisheries and everything. Didn't hear anything after writing the tests and so forth for more than a year. And then uh, eventually I just sort of focused on finishing school. I got called up to the military in Bloemfontein at one special service battalion, which is one of our armor units. Uh, as a conscript and uh, after finishing basic training I at that stage I didn't have an idea what to do with my life really I mean you're a young guy and you feel bulletproof and that type of thing I mean uh, there's a reason why internationally conscription is done in the age group 18 to 25 those guys feel bulletproof so uh, but anyway so uh, after basic training they came around now asked which of us would like to be instructors uh, and being in the armor environment, working with heavy machinery out in the open, it's pretty similar to working a tractor on a farm. So I thought, well, maybe not a bad bad option. And uh, two weeks after I signed the contract, I got a call from my mother. And uh, she said, no, your uh, marine biologist uh, bursary has been approved. No way. So what did you do? Uh, no, well, I was contractually locked in then, so I basically had to make peace with that. I still have a great affinity for nature uh, and uh, specifically the mari marine environment. Must be breaking your heart to see what's happening to... I mean, I was watching a documentary the other day um, on Hawaii and how much of the coral out there is dying um, because of uh, non-indigenous species that have been introduced to, the, to those islands, pigs and other things that are like digging up everything and... 
we're just finding so many different ways to ruin our planet, aren't we? Uh, yeah, humanity has a massive impact on the planet. Um, it's also one of my my interest subjects is the whole climate change thing and the impact that humanity has on on its and on on it uh, our environment. Uh, technology feeding into that is is I think very important. Technology won't get us out of it. We need to change habits, and to change habits and ways of of life is a very very difficult thing to do. So, and so for someone who didn't intend to have this you know, a, a really long career in the army. You you did really well. I mean, you topped out at Colonel, but... Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's, uh, you know, life life takes you on on a journey. And uh, it's it's your decision eventually where, that where you, you, you go with that journey and uh, where, where do you change the route. Uh, for me in the military... Um, I think I was fortunate to, at a, a fairly early on, uh, early stage, get involved in the, the technical side, technical technological side of things, uh, which then basically became uh, almost my main focus. Uh, towards the, the latter half of my career, I was responsible for quite a few of the technology programs in the Army, vehicle-related. Uh, also things like uh, simulation, vehicle simulators, um, we were one of the first countries outside of the U.S. that had a fully interlinked interactive training and simulation capability. Um, and then uh, on a plethora of other technology-related things, um, we did some quite interesting things. And so it, uh, I suppose we, we don't always realize it. We don't often realize it, but uh, the, the Army is usually national you know, defense forces tend to be, or at least historically, it might be different now, and we'll talk about how things have changed, because you, you enjoyed, uh, you've seen, you know, both sides of the fence as far as, you know, the change South Africa's come through in terms of change, uh, you know, change of government and democracy, and that's an in that's interesting to me as well, but um, historically, armies have always been, you know, one of the drivers of technological advancement, often out of necessity, so um, you would have easily been uh, in a sense, the Silicon Valley, uh, the pool of Silicon Valley types of your era. Uh, and I wonder how that much has changed given um, how much less is being spent on defense or how, you know, priorities have shifted because we're in the time of peace as far as South Africa is concerned. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think at the time, uh, by necessity, we had to invest uh, an inordinate amount of, of national uh, resources into a defense capability. Uh, history being what it is, uh, it's now for study, uh, hopefully not for repetition, but uh, um, I think the, the fact that defense budgets have been cut so severely since 1991, uh, on the one hand was, was bad news, uh, on the other hand it, it actually stimulated uh, industry in, in a different way, uh, in the sense that uh, as the the government investment in, in R&D reduced, uh, industry at the time had to make a decision, you know, do we stay in, in defense and, uh, uh, you know, break into the international market and become internationally competitive, which until 1994 was not possible, uh, or do we get out of defense and start selling peanut butter and fish paste? So that's that those were basically the choices we had. Today we have a situation that, uh, specifically in private industry, we are investing, uh, uh, it varies from company to company, but typically in the order of about 10% of our, of our profits go back into own funded research and development. And there are some areas like electronic warfare, for instance, uh, command and control and so forth. If you do not do that for one year, you are basically three years behind the curve in terms of international competitiveness. Uh, something I find quite interesting on, on that specific subject is uh, the fact that we in South Africa, through innovation and, and doing things smarter, uh, are able to compete with world players. And in some cases with players that get massive government funding, if you take the U.S., uh, in a specific case with active protection a few years ago that I was involved in, they spent 104 million rand on a single report on generating a single report. Uh, 
and in our case, we, we didn't have anywhere near that for the total program that we were busy with in South Africa at the moment. So uh, I think it's, it's where innovation really hits the road, you know, where, where it comes together. And so yo, you've, you've unearthed a number of different things that I, I hope we'll get a chance to, to talk about in more detail in the, during the course of this conversation. Um, but let's go chronologically. So you, you leave the army um, and you join Saab. Saab, by the way, uh, most people might associate with vehicles, with cars, um, because it was always a brand I loved. Actually, put onto to put onto it by my elder brother, who always just liked to be different. If everyone wanted a Beamer, he wanted a Merc. If you you know, if someone else wanted this, and and then I got into that too. And of course, throughout Vasti, all I wanted was a Saab S9 Aero. It was actually my password. So if you're interested in hacking my <laughs> So if you're interested in hacking my um, uh, my Varsity uh, uh, webmail, um, well, there's the password for you. And um, and of course, uh, Saab is a lot more than that. In fact, with the legacy of, 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 of doing a lot of work in the defense sector, building jets as, as far back as, you know, I believe the 60s even. Um, and now, really just a massive behemoth of a tech firm. We don't really think South Africa when we think Saab, and yet Saab Grintech is at least 30% South African, I believe, right? Uh, at the moment, uh, we're 25% uh, South African owned, but, uh, you know, one knows, what doesn't know what the future will bring. Uh, and so, yes, and the rest being Swedish, of course. Correct. Uh, so the, the majority shareholder in, in the company is, is uh, Saab Sweden. Uh, our local shareholder is uh, AEEI, uh, which is a uh, listed Johannesburg Stock Exchange listed company. But uh, coming back to, to where, it, where it started for me is uh, in 2001, I, in 2000, I, I basically made a decision that it was time for me to move on. Uh, we had the, the younger generation coming in. Um, you know, we had to create scope and positions for people to be promoted into and... and uh, I, I remained uh, in the reserve force for five years after I left in order to, to do transfer of skills and, and share experience and so forth. Back then, <coughs> excuse me, back then the company was, uh, was called uh, Grintech Electronics uh, and uh, or part of the Grintech Electronics company uh, uh, at that point owned by Zoli Kaneni. Uh, we had a, a division called Avatronics, Grintech Avatronics. That was the electronic warfare capability for South Africa. Um, I was basically approached to join the company to start uh, a new strategic uh, direction for the company in the sense of combat vehicle self-protection solutions. Uh, at that stage, we've already realized that uh, given where, where technology is going, that something like a main battle tank uh, or any combat vehicle for that matter, simply can't be protected adequately with just adding some more steel. Um, you, you hit a limit where if you go beyond that, you start losing mobility and your mechanical reliability and so forth just goes down the drain. Um, so that for me was basically the reason for, for making this transition. I was fortunate that uh, the last few years that I spent in the military gave me quite a broad exposure to technology management and also business as a, uh, from a business perspective. Um, I was uh, also the, the program manager or project manager rather for the Roycott uh, Armored Car program, which at that time was one of the biggest acquisition programs the Army has, uh, had done. Um, we were talking just uh, over 200 vehicles and at one stage, uh, early days, we were doing production uh, of between five and 12 vehicles a month. So quite a steep learning curve, uh, especially if you go down into s things like system engineering and configuration management, logistics management. Uh, it, it was a big, uh, big challenge. Uh, on the logistics side, um, we also introduced uh, something that is today in the, in the defense force called CALMUS. Uh, computer-aided logistic management information system. We initiated that uh, as a pilot pro project on the Roycott Armored Car program, where we had a thing called the Roybus, uh, the Roycott Management Information System. 
What's the, what's with the Roy? Because I mean, there's read this and read that the Roy Falk, the famous uh, helicopter that, by Donnell, and I know you guys were involved there as well. Um, but what, what's up with <laughs> who's naming these things? No, it's uh, the at that stage it uh, it was all the vogue to name combat systems after different animals and so forth. In in the army environment, we used uh, mammal names. In the air force environment, uh, they used birds. Uh, and Rui, of course, being red, so red this, red that, red cat, red, yeah. red hawk, and so on. Roycat is is Afrikaans for a caracal, which is a one of our smaller cats in the country. I wonder why it would be called a Roycat. It's got a reddish color if you see it in nature. Oh, I see. I've only seen it in pictures. So. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, uh, from that perspective, uh, it actually prepared me quite well to make this transition to industry to come in and. Uh, make a technology contribution and uh, with a fairly broad experience and background uh, in, in military matters uh, it also put me in a position to to make uh, to, to act actually as an internal user for the company so drafting things we we generally kick off our design process with a thing that we call a user requirement statement um, that's the second thing we do. Obviously, the first thing we do is we do a business case to see whether this technology is viable. But then uh, the second thing we do is then generate the user requirement statement based upon which we will then drive the, the design. Um, otherwise, you don't know where you're going. Uh, after everything's been said and done, and those guys that are, that are listening are uh, familiar with the, the classical V model of development, uh, one of the last things we do in our V model for technology like an active protection system would be an operational testing evaluation where you close the loop back to the user requirement statement to make sure that you've actually delivered what was intended. I think you're making some of our listeners think, maybe I should have joined the army. Like, what are they teaching people? In the uh, did you, you couldn't have possibly learned all this from the army. What did you do to supplement your learning uh, so you must have been, you know, naturally curious, naturally talented, obviously, uh, g given everything you've told me. But what prepared you to to think as strategic, to apply sort of the, the technical prowess and marry that with like a business approach? I think in my case, uh, you mentioned natural curiosity. That was certainly part of it. Um, I tried three times to get into the military academy in the old days to, to go and, and study a degree. Uh, on, on all three occasions, I was turned down for various reasons. Look at me now. Uh, <laughs> 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 after the third time, no, it's, it's all grace from above, but after the third time, uh, I decided, you know, I don't need a professor to tell me which books to read. I, I can read just as well as the next guy. The, the trick is actually in the synergy and the synthesis that you make from what you experience, what you learn, what you read. Uh, in the military at that stage, we had, uh, uh, specifically in the Armour Corps, we, Armour Corps, we had uh, uh, a, a very uh, well-based uh, approach to, to, leader to leadership. So we didn't only do military training in, sense of in the sense of weapon training. We also did things like leadership. Uh, I don't know, some of you might remember the old uh, investment in excellence course where they, they actually take you through very in-depth leadership training. Uh, you had to manage change, you had to think about things. Um, uh, from the, 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 the technology technical side, uh, we did courses like system engineering, uh, project management, and so forth as part of, of training in the military. So uh, over and above uh, that, I also got uh, substantial experience and had the privilege to work with some really uh, great guys. Uh, some of them turned into mentors and others turned into walking libraries. But uh, and, and they basically formed me to a large extent you know things uh, obviously something like internal ballistics is something that the average guy knows nothing about Bec because I was involved in this research and development and actually served as the commander of research and development for the armor for a few years uh, it, it got you into these things and you had to study yourself into it in order to to make sense of it and in order to make to do a job on it and and be scientifically Defender, defendable if you make a statement or produce a report. 
Because I think that's one of the biggest challenges if you go into technology is to, to approach it uh, over and above the innovation aspect, is to approach it from the, the scientifically, uh, the confidence aspect of it. Um, yeah, I suppose um, it's quite um, counterintuitive to the, the vibe promoted by the modern day sort of startup mindset, this idea that if you know that passion, you know, passion driven things and not not to diminish the role of passion in coming up with crazy ideas. I mean, look at Elon Musk and, and, and a whole bunch of, you know, amazing innovators who, if they didn't dream, we wouldn't, you know, would be the lesser for us, you know, as a, as a community, as a, as a global community, surely. But like you say, there is a, a, a discipline um, that can be applied and benefited from uh, through a more structured approach. Absolutely. Uh, that being said, um, I'm the first guy that will say think big. Um, the crazy idea is often not that crazy. Um, one of the things I worked with uh, is, for instance, we were investigating ways to, to defeat the main battle tank without actually having to, to heat it. So these are the, the sort of ideas and you take it into a brain scrum and you start working around it. Uh, and some I imagine a lot cheaper to, to work that way than to like <laughs> empty like your armory at it. Yeah, you know, money is, is always a factor, but uh, there's also the saying that empty pockets never stopped anybody. Empty hearts and empty minds did. So we need to, it, it's, it's your your attitude towards a specific thing, uh, your mental uh, approach to it, and then innovation. You know, I, I, I'm very passionate about innovation. It's, uh, it's what often turns something that's on face value mediocre, turns it into some, something exceptional. I think innovation is underrated. This idea that you can take something already there and improve upon it as opposed to try and reinvent the wheel. Are there too many people trying to reinvent the wheel, do you think? Yeah, in, in some areas we've, we've got this thing that, uh, uh, and, and in the, in the defense-related sense, we call it blue sky technology, you know, um, we, and that is, is probably the most expensive end of your whole research and development spectrum because you essentially establishing new technology or new uh, methods or something that uh, you've got at that point in some cases not even an inkling how you're going to apply this. Uh, in South Africa today, I believe we are mostly in the defense environment looking at, at applied research and development um, and specifically so in our, in, in, the, in the private industry domain, uh, very much uh, applied research and development. We, we start from a business case that forces us to focus on, on a, a commercialization of that technology and not so much on just doing something because I can. Um, so sustainability, and I, li I like to think um, Africa is probably one of the few places in the world where true innovation really happens, not least because we are, um, we are challenged for resources, but also I think it's a mindset that w comes probably more natural, r naturally to us uh, than other parts of the world where it's, it, we're in many, you know, in many contexts, we don't wait around for, for someone to, you know, show us how to do something or deliver value. We kind of figure it out ourselves. And I, I mean, I think medicine is an ex excellent example of that way. The world is starting to benefit hugely from so-called discoveries that we've been using for centuries, you know, to heal ourselves and improve our lives. Correct. Yes, correct. Um, I mean, you just... Uh in, in, in South Africa, we have a saying from, from Afrikaans, a boermark, a plan, you know, you, you make a plan. And I think that's very much prevalent and probably underlying our uh, natural innovativeness. Uh, I mean, you just need to drive out of the city into the rural areas and you see some of the things that people are doing on a day-to-day -day basis to solve their immediate problem. And uh, it's, uh, it's that spirit, I think, that... Uh, that uh, sets us apart. So your career careers really um, straddle a, a fascinating time in history. Um, and you, you, you alluded to it earlier that there are many lessons to be learned from it, hopefully many mistakes not to be repeated, but you had the benefit of having this bird's eye view of this massive change that took over South Africa. You, say, you mentioned in, a, in your talk, and stayed with me, in your talk at the Aerospace and Defense Conference, uh, you know, some months ago or some weeks ago 
um, that many of us weren't ready for, or many of your contemporaries weren't ready for, for the changes that would, would take place from a focus point of view. For example, South Africa now having to take on responsibility for being you know, the big brother for the rest of the continent in many respects as far as peacekeeping is concerned. I mean, there are many, many aspects to the change that we weren't, many people weren't either ready for or, or, or happy to see. What is your take in terms of um, how that's impacted uh, defense uh, as an industry and technologi technological advancement in that space? I was indeed fortunate to see this whole transition of South Africa uh, going into the military in 1975 and then through to when I left in 2000, uh, seeing the, the evolution of South Africa for me was, uh, was very interesting. From a, a technological perspective, I think before 1994, actually before 1991, because from 91 we started seeing serious defense cuts. Um, the defense uh, budget basically started coming down from in the order of 9% of, uh, of GDP to the, the current about uh, between 1.2 and 1.4% of GDP. So just from a financial impact, uh, that was huge. I mean, we, we went from, uh, from a, a, a standing, a, a, a large standing uh, regular army with uh, in the order of 800,000 reservists. We went down to, at the moment, uh, a total capability of about 74,000. So um, massive changes from that respect. Um, Technology-wise, we had to we had to, uh, and I was part of, uh, of the initial work in this regard, we had to sit down and from a strategic perspective, decide what the country can afford and what we have to do as sovereign and, and strategic capability and uh, which things we had to relinquish. Um, one of these, for example, was uh, until about 1990, uh, we were working on a on an, a South African indigenous main battle tank program that was going to replace the the old centurions that we that we got from the British, and uh, we've upgraded them significantly, but they were reaching end of life basically. So uh, that was one of the strategic tough de strategic decisions we had to make. We we were not a, a tank building nation. We didn't have the 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 local defence requirement that drives the numbers to make it a business case and trying to sell a South African indigenous tank to the international world we were tail chasing the Krauss Malfais and uh, the general dynamics and these guys in the world that's already well established with uh, large fleets internationally deployed and could probably beat us purely on, on, on a, a price volume perspective could beat us in the marketplace uh, so that we then canned the tank, uh, the tank development program, uh, pulled the plug on it, and we decided we will go forward and turn, turn ourselves into smart buyers rather than, than smart builders. I still believe that is probably the right way to approach things. But that being said, I also believe in a, in a, a more collaborative approach to the future we need to look broader than just defense. We need to, to also start looking at things that impact directly on, on, uh, on our social and environmental aspects of, of modern society. Uh, we cannot continue with business as usual, and uh, I'm glad to say that I'm beginning to see some of that happening in South Africa specifically, and uh, also in countries like Kenya and elsewhere, uh, we're seeing uh, a growth in, for instance, alternate energy. Um, yesterday, by coincidence, we had a discussion here on uh, uh, the impact of energy as uh, a, a, a stressor. Uh, if you have huge coal-fired power stations, you need quite a lot of water to take through it. And we all know what the, the status is in South Africa at the moment. There are some areas where you can only water your garden with a bucket if you have a garden. Um, so... We need to, to, I think, slightly change our approach to things like alternate energy and rather see it as a mitigator of conflict than uh, see it as something that's going to put added expense on somebody. And I think there are models for this. Um, we don't need to get the government to pay for everything. Uh, 
simple example, if we go for decentralized networks, uh, why can't we give a rural village a standalone capability with solar or wind if it's available um, and, and uh, give them the wherewithal to, to maintain it, to administer it and so forth? Uh, that's your, uh, just listening to you, I'm thinking that should freak out. Uh, the way you're thinking is the kind of thinking that I think freaks out many people in the C-suite um, across some of the world's biggest firms because it's humbling yourself to the, to the thought that everything I'm currently doing to contribute to the ongoing success for my business might be absolutely pointless and useless in the scheme of what the future is going to demand but is trying to think about that now and, and plan for it. But how, what, how do you navigate those issues as, say, a board or an ex-co at a company that's historically done so much in defense, for example, in specific projects that require you know, uh, a certain kind of thinking in order to develop so-called solutions? We see defense as a, as a dynamo for technology, but uh, the, the historically well-defined line between defense and other is is very rapidly fading. Uh, the the so-called dual-use technologies are now becoming mainstream in some cases. Uh, Give me an example of something that's just become ubiquitous um, in both defense and day-to-day. Um, typically, in within the company, we we historically were building electronic warfare protection system for military aircraft. Uh, that would protect the aircraft from a rocket, uh, shoulder-fired missile, or air-to-air engagement, or uh, whatever the case may be. Um, we took that same basic technology, uh, took it through a, the, the Vasnar agreement process, which is an international agreement between a, a number of countries for uh, civilian use of what is in essence military technology, and we turned that into a civilian aircraft protection system against uh, shoulder-launched missiles. And we started doing that as uh, a consequence of seeing civilian airliners being shot down by shoulder-launched missiles, not only in Africa, but also elsewhere in the world. Um, you, uh, you might remember uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan that uh, 747 DHL aircraft that was hit. Uh, that's, that's what uh, basically put us on the track. Uh, why can't we use this technology for something like that? Um, in a similar vein, we, we developed um, a, a tracker, um, we call it the IMPI, that uh, we use for tracking of, of personnel, vehicles, platforms, assets, and so forth. And there's no reason why we cannot repackage that technology and then use it, for instance, on, uh, on civilian applications. Um, why, why can't we use it on something like a police vehicle or a... DHL's delivery trucks. So, um, and, and it's it's a slightly different approach. You can probably say yes, but it's already out there with GPS and C-Track and these guys. Um, we, we're thinking bigger than that in terms of not only knowing where the individual vehicle is, but also linking that up to what we call enabled awareness, um, which is uh, actually our core business in this business unit uh, that I'm part of now. So. It's, uh, it's different ways of, of working things. Uh, CSIR, for instance, have developed essentially for military application initially some water purification that was man-portable. So it uh, looked like a, almost like a thick cool drink straw and you can drink through it from any water source. Takes out bacteria, takes out impurities and, and so forth. Um, that has now since emerged into the relief aid world where in, in outlying areas with poor water quality, um, they include these things in, in packs that they, they give to people. So there are many, many such ad advantages or examples that uh, essentially defense investment can bring to the table. I'd like to you know, pick your mind uh, or at least uh, get a sense of how, what you think when you hear um, or, or when you observe all the... Uh, excitement around the Internet of, internet of Things and uh, the announcement from like the major networks saying they're going to be launching these Internet of Things networks and even smaller companies like uh, DFA saying they'll be doing the same. And then you hear things like um, Elon Musk, who I've referenced three times in this conversation for some <laughs> reason. <laughs> 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 
innovative South Africans. Yeah, well, okay, we'll give him that. I have no idea why he's top of mind for whatever. But um, Elon Musk announcing, uh, well, approaching the U.S. government on this massive satellite project that wants to beam internet, you know, make, you know, internet access, global internet access a thing. Um, I w- you're a defense man, and I'm sure you're aware, to, you're aware of the risks, the inherent risks, should these plans come to fruition. What are, what are your thoughts personally, and what are your, what's your approach uh, as, uh, as Saab, for example, Saab Green Tech, to, to developments like this? We, on a continual basis, do, do risk assessment on technologies. Um, we've, we've got, a, I believe, one of the better product lifecycle management processes in the industry. Uh, and part of that is to, to do uh, technology, uh, future technology emergence uh, assessments, l- look at competitive uh, assessment and so forth. Internet of Things, I don't necessarily see as a threat. Uh, a threat is a threat when you fail to do something about it. Then it is a threat. If if you utilize, because every threat also in it has an inherent advantage. If you utilize th- and exploit the advantage to your benefit, it no longer is a threat. It actually becomes uh, an enabler. And there are, uh, again, some, some examples uh, going around at the moment where, where some people perceive technologies emerging as threats some people choose to do nothing. Um, I, I always refer back to the Kodak example. They refused to believe in digital cameras ever taking off. Three years later, they were bankrupt. Um, disruptive technology is something that's it's a reality. Um, and over and above the Internet of Things, the, the explosion of information, um, that in itself is also becoming a driver for other technologies. Um, I, I think in the next few years, we will probably see a massive increase in artificial intelligence. And in my opinion, part of the reason for that, uh, over and above people being lazy, uh, I, I think artificial intelligence is actually being boosted by things like the Internet of Things. Yeah. There's just so much data now to crunch, and I mean, there's no human being on the planet in their lifetime who's got the time to do it. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's why we're seeing the emergence of these technologies. Uh, some of these technologies are concerning in terms of its impact on on human society. If you look at robotics, uh, there's it, it's it's one of the things commonly recognized in a lot of the the conferences and things that I'm involved in, but I haven't to date heard a single comprehensive solution for the consequences of robotics. If you've got 5,000 people working in a factory, you replace them with robotics, what are you going to do with that 5,000 people? Which in in essence is actually not 5,000, it's 50,000 because each one of them has knock-on support to about 10 other people. So these are the the aspects of technology and and bringing it closer to social responsibility and um, how do we want to engineer our future responsibly? Your approach is to think of it from a macro, uh, uh, from a strategic macro, s- you know, sensibility as opposed to, oh, where's the next DDoS attack going to come from? Is it going to be, is it going to be because they hacked our cameras or something? As opposed to, you know, what does the future look like and how will technology impact the, the value of life for the average individual citizen of the world? That's where you've got to start if you, if you want to turn technology to a business. Um, if you don't do that, you're going to end up doing something that by the time you're finished is three to five years behind. Um, so uh, have this future vision, make a decision on which of these things are viable within your capacity and your capability, and then exploit those things. Com- a lot of, uh, I would say most companies nowadays, not only defense but also commercially, uh, have, have got very robust social responsibility programs that they're running. Uh, we are at the moment involved in a few of these programs, um, doing things like uh, crashes in outlying areas and so forth. And uh, I think that's that's what's necessary. We we need to st- we need to take a more holistic way. Uh, uh, of working towards the whole of society. Um, it may sound funny coming from an old soldier, but I believe combat and conflict to be the, the absolute last resort. 
if we get our ducks in a row, it shouldn't happen. And so, it, p perfect segue to my next question, which is a, a pretty tough one in the sense um, we, we don't typically associate uh, companies that do a lot of work in the defense industry. Perhaps I think America's got <laughs> a lot to do with it uh, in terms of you know the movies we watch and 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 then being in the news and and certainly some of the the, the less the less flattering things that end up in the news, but we don't associate the defense industry with this altruistic um, mindset that, or I wouldn't call it altruistic, but really earth-loving, <laughs> earth-loving mindset I'm picking up from you. And uh, if anything, uh, your background as as a soldier who's no doubt been, you know, you know, in the trenches quite literally in this case, and seeing the cost of war and, and what it can mean. And uh, it, it, you're sort of helping change that for me personally as a pacifist. Um, but what do you, how do you guys navigate those issues as, as a company that works uh, in, 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 in defense? Look, it's not easy. Um, and and uh, maybe in the past it was as simple as you need to generate dividends for shareholders, but it's even shareholders are beginning to realize that we've we've got to move beyond that. And specifically in the developing world, um, we we can't see things in silos. We need to see things and capabilities and and leverage on synergies to to actually come to a collaborative future. Have you always felt that way? I, something I, I sense that perhaps this is uh, s something distilled through through your experience, and maybe that's come with with you know being a grown <laughs> grown ass man. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I but how much of that has always been how you felt about things, and how much of it ha did you need to sort of uh, pick up as your career progressed? I think as a young man, I didn't have this understanding. Um, you know, when you when you're young, the the world is pretty uh, pretty much black and white. There's no gray. They're like bad guys over there. Blast them out of. Uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, uh, and that simplistic attitude is something that's not going to solve anything. Um, uh, it's it's something that uh, that I realized only later in my military career is to which extent. Um, one needs to follow, if you look at total cost of conflict, to what extent one needs to, to pursue and try and exploit alternate ways than actually getting into a fight. Um, it's uh, sad to say in, in some areas of the world and with uh, some uh, political leaders around the globe, that is not the case. They, they still have very much this big stick theory I'm going to force you through military means to to do my will or play my way. Uh, what we're seeing in the in the world and what we have been seeing in the last probably 20 years from uh, the, the early 90s is a total shift away from from that almost classical Second World War type of uh, I'm going to beat you on the battlefield and that's the end of it. There's a, a much clearer understanding today in terms of peacekeeping and similar type of operations that peacekeeping or peace enforcing is the easy part of things. What you actually now need to, to leave behind from such an operation is an established alternative that is a viable community. And case in point, uh, Afghanistan, case in point, Iraq, case in point, Libya. Correct. And uh, also in Africa, we've, we've got a few examples uh, with uh, countries that are either failed states or close to failed states. Um, and doing, uh, establishing a viable future uh, is, is vastly bigger than just the military means. And I suppose the inconvenient truth for your industry is that in the short term, for, for people uh, who give themselves the liberty to think short term, the the vastly more profitable approach is to just arm up and and go to war. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting book on this in in this line. It's called Five Stages of Collapse by a, a Russian author uh, Orlov, where he says one of one of the the signs of a collapsing society is the increased use of military means, and. Uh, I, I would hate to see us go down that route because uh, uh, 
coming from a from a former soldier it may sound strange but when you have to start shooting at people that's way beyond the point of where you should have fixed things um but uh coming back to to technologies um with uh, specifically things ro like robotics and artificial intelligence i think is going to have massive impact on society um uh, simple example uh, go test drive any new fairly upmarket car nowadays it's got automatic lane a Saab maybe a Saab yeah <laughs> okay for the record though you guys sold that business right yeah we sold it to General Motors in the late 90s oh, I wish you had sold it to someone else <laughs> <laughs> yeah they didn't go on to do very much uh, uh, right uh, uh, later in, 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 dec in the decades to follow um, but, um, but there's still Saabs out there yeah, they are. As, uh, quite interestingly, um, uh, for those of you that have been following the Saab history, the Saab uh, automotive history, uh, after it was sold to General Motors, it ended up getting sold to a, a Dutch company called Spiker, who at the time was involved in Formula One racing. And then uh, when they couldn't get it off the ground, uh, it eventually ended up with a Chinese company. So now you have a Chinese company exploiting the Saab automotive um uh, uh, brand and yeah and and basically the the, the design and I so india's got land rover the chinese have saab <laughs> i'm not sure if it's called saab anymore but uh yeah, but i guess they inherited all the technology with it and yeah Come i'm on. over my love affair now i'll, I'll happily drive something else it's okay <laughs> but uh you were making a point though i digress you were making a point about um artificial intelligence and when you drive a fairly upmarket car like a saab we hope I mean, uh, nowadays, if you go if you go abroad and you, you take a rental car, most of them have got automatic uh, distance, automatic following. Uh, they've got automatic lane changing control and so forth. Um, I think we're pretty close to to the point where cars can drive themselves. It's uh, it's it's a human perception thing that's keeping it back, and that's another dimension on technology is is human perception. And, and the importance of understanding and changing perceptions in order to successfully launch technologies. Uh, again, th something like alternate energy. Uh, electric cars, electric vehicles is, rea is a reality. I mean, uh, in South Africa, in the military, we demonstrated an electric drive vehicle in 1995, uh, an 8x8 truck. Hang on, 95? Uh, yeah, I was in grade school. My word! <laughs> So uh, it's, it's been around a long time. It's, it's simply, on the one hand, uh, companies and countries with vested interests in things like fossil fuels and conventional drivetrains and so forth that are, on the one hand, trying to control the rate of this change so that they, they still maintain a business. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's people not readily... Uh, the ordinary man in the street not readily standing up and saying, look, but we can have something better and create the demand. If, if everybody tomorrow starts saying we want electric cars, it'll happen before the end of the year. It's like the cartel behind b batteries that charge our devices and stuff. I Come on, there has to be a battery that lasts a year <laughs> somewhere out there. Yeah, battery technology uh, is, is one of the challenges of alternate energy in general, not only mobile phones. Uh, there are some very promising things coming out. But what, uh, what, uh, what astonishes me is that nobody could standardize the charging point on mobile phones or chargers. Why do you have 50 different chargers for 50 different phones? Oh, but it's so much more money to be made. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true, but... So here's here's something I'd like to ask you, given what you just said. Um, you know, you're talking mindset and mindset. I'm curious about maybe an aspect outside of your professional life where you had to, you know, adopt a massive sh shift in mindset that you found prof that's changed your life in a profound manner, perhaps professionally and otherwise, you know. But, you know, what you've just talked about, this idea that sometimes we're the limiting factor, what... What in your life maybe ha has 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 been that way for you? Something you had to change, or something that changed in your life and improved it, perhaps. I think all of us have life-changing experiences. Um, in my case, something that uh, that took me a step up in terms of believing in myself and and changing my attitude towards things was a specific mentor that I had. That. Uh, basically as a young guy made me understand that I'm the master of my destiny. 
and uh, I can't blame anybody else if uh, if I don't get anywhere. And how do you get that through to you? Um, it it was both in a in a work related sense. Uh, we back then in the military we had very specific performance management criteria. And uh, you know, as a young guy, you you tend to fall back on the, but it's it wasn't my fault, you know. And it eventually turned out that uh, it's as simple as uh, bad performance, and a good excuse remains bad performance. So accept it and make sure that that your performance is up to scratch. So do you uh, do you apply that principle with people who work for you? Yeah, very much so. So <laughs> um, it I think it's it's something we need to to realize and we need to to get across to people as part of leadership is is this whole thing of ultimately you're you are responsible for yourself but also uh, ultimately you have a larger responsibility towards the environment and the people around you. you nobody is is an individual or an entity on himself everybody is interrelated uh, the globe is networked uh, both socially and technologically uh, so we need to share wisdom we need to share knowledge um, I think the the second thing that, that had a, a major impact on, on me uh, and fundamentally changed my approach is uh, during my military career at one stage, we, we were uh, in the operational area. And uh, we had, back then we had uh, uh, a battalion, the, the Zulu battalion, uh, which were some of the, the best infantry soldiers I've had the privilege of working for, for working with. And uh, on uh, one morning, early three o'clock in the morning, I was woken up by people singing. So I walked across to go and quiet them down. You know, you don't sing and make a lot of noise and make huge bonfires in the middle of an operational area. It's badly, it is probably a bad idea. And uh, as I walked over, it suddenly struck me uh, as, as a, a white South African, you know, these guys, are good enough to get uh, killed with me today, but if we get back to South Africa, I can't go and buy him a cup of coffee in the restaurant. And uh, that basically changed my my whole foundation, so to speak. Um, so I think that was the, the second major change in my life or change instigator that, that single moment. Uh, then technology-wise, uh, it was the realization um, after I joined the company uh, that the, the technology that we do does fundamentally make a difference to people. Uh, we had specific feedback from, from guys that's, that were using our equipment that survived engagements. So I think all of this feeds into your perception of, of value added personal value added uh in on on so many levels you know so yeah it, it influences what you what matters to you basically and, and what matters period what matters yeah it informs what matters yeah that's absolutely correct you know it's uh, it's more than just uh, getting a salary at the end of the month it's it's about so much more so you seem to be pretty chill. Like you, <laughs> you, 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 you've got these vibes. I mean, you walk through the room and you sit. Me, you know, you. Um, yeah, I wonder how, how you is is that is that a temperament thing? Is it a learned thing, or is there something phenomenally cool that you do to like decompress and relax? And you've had a fairly stressful career, and yet you seem pretty chill. I think it comes with, with realizing your place in the bigger scheme of things. And it, it's, it's humbling, but also the realization that you can't always make the difference. There are some things you cannot change. And it doesn't, need, you, it doesn't matter if you stress up about them, you're still not going to change them. So um, it's definitely something that also comes with, uh, with age as, as one gets older. Uh, you sort of mature and you start taking a different perspective on things. You know, uh, when you're young, you want to take the guy's head off. And uh, as, as you get older, you, you say, yeah, you know, it's interesting, but uh, let's talk again tomorrow. So 
it's just uh, it's a change in approach, a change in attitude, basically, and uh, being being comfortable with who you are and where you are and what you can contribute is, is I believe, what uh, gives you this uh, like almost inner peace. If I could offer you three questions, like um, I got you. Um, I got you some recording equipment, and I got this time machine, I could send you back in time. <laughs> so I could send you back in time and uh, to record the answers to three questions with one person. Anyone in history, perhaps in your life, or perhaps someone you never met, perhaps someone you read about, who would that person be, and what would those three questions be? Wow. That is an interesting one. There are so many people we can learn from. Um, probably, uh, I would like to, to have a discussion, uh, and, and it's unfair restricting me to one guy here, but... Yeah, it, it has to, but I think it, yeah, I'm kind of forcing you into a funnel here, forcing your, mi your thoughts into a funnel. I think I would probably ask Albert Einstein a few questions. I think, first of all, um, why did they embark on a nuclear program? Sure, fascinating, right? Yeah. Okay, that because he he had to be in on on the the strategic vision, or at least I'd like to think he did. Yeah. Um, I don't imagine he's he's a smart guy. He was a smart guy. I don't imagine he'd participate, not knowing where it was all going. Yeah, uh, definitely, and. I think the the second question is um, from from the theory of relativity. Does he think it's done uh, at the time when he when he came up with it? Uh, was there anything to improve on it? Um, oh, these are deep questions, man. So this is perfect. You're the perfect you're you're, you're the perfect guest to have to have this uh, to have this with. And what's the third thing? You'd ask Albert Einstein. The third one is in a lighter vein. Why the hell didn't they invent time travel? I'm fed up of sitting 18 hours on aircraft. <laughs> are, you, are you ready for, for teleporting? <laughs> True, yeah. I, I think it's, it's something that's coming. Probably not in my lifetime, but technology is certainly making steps in that direction. So. And, uh, you know, now we're winding down, and uh, typically these are much easier questions, but... Um, you're inspiring me to ask, you know, in, in the future you envisage after you're gone, what are some of the things in that future you're glad you're not going to be here to see? I think, first of all, world overpopulation. We're procreating ourselves out of a planet. And it's, it's I think, probably one of, of the more urgent things we will have to address as humanity. This is the only planet we have. We can't treat it like mildew on a slice of bread. It's when it's done, it's done. Um, and until such time as we we actually do invent and perfect time travel, don't have expectations of finding someplace else. Well, I'm betting against that, by the way, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> time travel, I'm sure it's out there. But again, you said dream big, think big. Yeah, well, the reality is with, with current technology and near future technologies that's under development, we struggle to reach March, Mars, and uh, to establish a, vi a viable civilization there is, in my opinion, beyond our capabilities at the moment. Yeah. I think Elon Musk would agree, and um, I think it's one of his... M there he is again. Look at that. Look, Elon, stay out of my conversation. All right, so your favorite animal, given you're a, a marine biologist uh, wannabe, <laughs> hopeful. There's still time, you know. In the marine environment, an octopus. Octopus. Why? Fascinating things. Uh, it's got the intelligence of a German shepherd. It's one of the few animals on, in, on the planet that can change its its look, both in terms of color and texture. And of course, they can fit through a crack with that brain. Yeah, with uh, and with almost with only a single bone in the in the body. It's uh, it's amazing to 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 see these things and how they operate. I've never quite understood eating them. I generally don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I generally prefer, if they're in the water, I prefer anything with scales. Uh, <laughs> anything that uh, looks like an octopus, I'd like to admire rather than <clears throat> consume. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting animal. I've never heard that answer to that question. Yeah. 
It's uh, I don't eat them either, by the way. It's, uh, I out of respect? Uh, not out of respect. I think there's enough other things to eat. It's a lot, lot easier to to get hold of. But uh, and also to cook up. I, I mean, the, when you watch these food shows, I mean, the effort to make like calamari or whatever look and taste good. I mean, it's quite a thing. Yeah. Um, no, so um, that's that's probably in the marine environment my favorite animal. Um, on land, on land, I I would probably lean lean towards elephant. Uh, very intelligent, social. Um, I I still believe they have a language. We just haven't figured it out yet. Um, yeah, you can't help but be in awe when you're next to one. It's 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 quite uncanny. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, with recent study, they've now actually determined they have uh, they can sense ultrasonic sound waves through their feet, so they can sense changes in the environment that has uh, an ultrasonic effect over vast distances. And uh, they they're still doing study on it now in Etosha and a few other places. But uh, I think the 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 choir hasn't sung its final note yet on on things like elephants and dolphins and. The killer whales and these things. Isn't it humbling to realize how much time, effort? I mean, I come to a place like this, I see the, the dozens of people that work here at South Green Tech. I, I think of the billions of dollars that go into R&D across sectors in technology and innovation. We can't figure out, yet we're no closer to understanding all there is to know about, say, how an octopus works, you know? Yeah, a lot have been done on that, but uh, I think in general it it comes down to prioritizations. You know, uh, governments prioritize things in accordance to what the perceived need at the time is. I suppose my point is that I mean, how much, how incredibly nature is designed, or it, for those of us who believe in 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 crea in, in the design uh, uh, principle, evolution. yeah, or those of those of you who believe in evolution, well, yeah, I have a hard time with that just because. Look how much time and effort it takes to make something, say, like the the Ruifalk, right? And and the all the all the, the Ruifalk hel helicopter, which is one of the most famous exports, uh, South African exports militarily. And look how much time and energy it took to make that machine, and how it's so difficult to improve upon it all these years later. And yet, like octopuses, just are. Yeah, it's uh, one needs to take a different perspective on that, though. Uh, octopus evolved over millions of years. Is one theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take you out on this. <laughs> You've been a good sport. I can see. For those you obviously can't see him right now, he's thinking, okay, we have a creationist in the building. <laughs> I'm going to need to keep, be patient. I'm going to need to be chilled. <laughs> I'd hate to burst your bubble, but nothing happened at a single instance. Oh, he shots fired. You see what I did there? See what I did? <laughs> I'm back to the, where we started with a shot fired at the beginning of the episode. originated perhaps at a single instance. Uh, I, I've got my own thoughts about the Big Bang Theory. I think things happened before that, but be that as it may. But uh, since, since that single instance, we've been in constant change. Wow. Wow. Here as a planet, as a universe. Look, it's hard to argue that that fact, given how things have just had to, to, to keep up with the pace of change. I mean, really, there should be mass extinction, extinction at this point, given what we're doing to the planet. We are seeing mass extinction already, uh, in, in a lot of cases, in species that are not frontline news. Uh, frogs, for instance, uh, amphibians. Uh, we're losing amphibian species at a terrific rate because of environmental contamination. It's probably one of the first indicators of, of environmental change is disappearance of things like frogs. I mean, they should, yeah. yeah. What a fascinating conversation. I don't know what I expected, except that I heard you speak uh, at the conference and really quite taken by some of the things you said. Um, uh, I suppose having Saab in the, in the mix had something to do with it. No, not really, but no, certainly I've, I've enjoyed the chat I've had with you. Um, I have a much better understanding of uh, you know, the importance of thinking uh, strategically at a macro level. Uh, even even though we're here, like, trying to manage our own affairs and, and trying to, you know, seek benefit for shareholders and, 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 and immediate stakeholders and stuff, I, I see, I've, I've learned from you in the short time I've, I've, I've spoken to you, the benefit of having a much broader mindset and approach to things. 
No, thank you. It was a privilege for me to be invited. Um, it's uh, it's always nice to share and uh, do some verbal sparring too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll carry on off mic, trust. <laughs> but uh, I, I firmly believe that uh, we we all need to make a contribution uh, through whatever we do. The, the, the saying or the cliche that you sometimes hear, think global, act local, is, is very true. And... Uh, it's we we need to to use our influence and our our technology and our capabilities to to shape our future uh, and so lacking to do so we probably won't have a future absolutely and so i typically close every conversation with the same question is there a question i haven't asked you that perhaps you wish i had <laughs> yeah um not really. Oh, well, shame. I haven't even g given you a chance to shout out to the family. I imagine you might have children or <laughs> a significant other to shout out. Uh, I'm married to, my wife's name is Brita. Uh, Great-grandmother was Swedish, by the way. And uh, we've got two boys, uh, age 32 and 31. The elder, is, elder one is a professional dance teacher. No way. And uh, the younger one is a clearance diver in the Navy. So... Okay, so I was about to joke about how the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Clearly, doesn't apply to the firstborn, <laughs> but then, but then, uh, but then, uh, you know, there's there's some sort of uh, military vibes in the second. But I'm sure you, you did. You ever put them under pressure to to follow? Were they ever? Do you think under pressure to follow in your footsteps as far as the military was concerned? No, I I, I made a specific concerted effort never to force them into anything. I mean, it's each in uh, each individual's right to decide their future so uh, we let them decide and then then you support them as far as you can uh, but just back to the elder one being a da dance teacher um, in my very young days i danced in a uh, what is the word uh, caric probably caricature is the wrong word but in a uh, a swan lake it was only us guys, 12 of us, dressed up in tutus and a whole lot, and it was for a charity event. So. I can't even imagine it. We got a standing ovation. So uh, <laughs> I hope you raise a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, we actually did. They better throw something at you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, man. I really do appreciate uh, the time you spent with me. Uh, yeah, all the best. Uh, thank you for listening.